Hello there. Going through a divorce? Considering one? Sorry to hear that. But here you are. Welcome to Splitsville. You'll find Splitsville to be a pretty unique place. A new world, really. With its own rules, its own expectations, and in many ways, its own language. But don't worry. You have a knowledgeable guide along the way. A family law attorney with three decades of experience under her belt. And now, here she is. Your host and guide, Lee Sellers. Hi, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of Welcome to Splitsville. I'm your host and guide, Lee Sellers, founder of Touchstone Family Law. And in this episode, I'll be answering another question that many newcomers to Splitsville have. What can a PI do for you? So let's dive in. So today we have Jan Barefoot with us, who is a private investigator in the Charlotte area and beyond. And we have brought her in here to talk a little bit about what she does and doesn't do in the capacity as a private investigator because we see so much of that work in what we do with clients who are separating or divorcing where they feel that they need to employ the services of a private investigator. So thank you, Jan, for coming. Thanks for having me. It's great to see you. Well, why don't you uh, tell the listeners a little bit about your company and what you do? So uh, we are a full-service private investigation company. I've been in business um, since 1986, so just over 32 years. I have five full-time employees and a couple of part-time employees And we offer all types of surveillance cases, uh, the obvious domestic surveillance, personal injury, workers' comp. We also do background checks, locate, service a process, do criminal defense work, everything from, you know, assault cases to rape cases to capital murder cases. So I know I personally will suggest a private investigator or use a private investigator definitely to locate an opposing party that's difficult to find or a witness that's difficult to find and process service and even occasionally to follow someone to see if maybe they're employed somewhere or or earning some money somewhere uh, that they didn't really want to report. But most of the time, my experience with private investigators comes when I have a client that comes in and they are concerned that their spouse is having an affair um, in a relationship with someone else or behaving inappropriately, perhaps devolved into some addiction or gambling or something like that. And they're they're really wanting to figure out how they're going to find out, number one. And number two, if they feel they already know, how are they going to prove it? And so they often come to me and, and ask, you know, what do I do? So we do end up being on the receiving end of a lot of PI reports. But When these people call you, what is it like from your perspective when they're calling you? Because sometimes they'll call you before they call me. Yeah, that's actually fairly common. Probably about 70% of our work is domestic related in one form or another. Probably about half of that, they're calling us first. And half of the, uh, the other half, they're calling the attorneys first. So I have 32 years of experience. So I guide them you know, cautiously without giving them legal advice. So if they don't yet have an attorney, then we'll go into the case and just really kind of figure out what's going on and get them a good basis of what's, you know, just exactly what we're finding and what's going on. And then they can decide which way they want to go from there. Typically, I 
I urge them strongly to go at least consult with an attorney before they confront their spouse or because they don't want to you know, mess their case up before it even gets started. And so the main thing is for them to protect themselves. So I tell them, you know, don't shoot yourself in the foot. You need to go and get some advice from an attorney to figure out the best way to handle your situation. Right. How to use that information. Right. And whether or not it is useful. Right. So what are some of the the things that you need from a a client, a, a person that comes in to hire you? What do they need to be prepared to explain to you? And what information do you expect them to be able to provide you to do your job? Well, you know, most people are really intimidated and nervous before they call an investigator because they've usually never spoken with one, never, ever dreamed that they would need one. So it's really very simple. I can do it in a 20-minute phone conversation with them. I need addresses, names, descriptions, you know, vehicle descriptions, uh, license plates if they can get them. If not, we can usually get those. And then more often what we need is just a conversation about their habits because Oftentimes they know exactly when something might be happening, but most of the time they don't. So I need to hear their story and can usually at that point offer them some suggestions on when the best time to to do surveillance would be. Now, if they're going to engage you to do the work after they've talked to you and sort of explained their situation, what should they be prepared to do? Is there going to be a contract? Are they going to come meet with you personally? How do you handle actually taking in a client after that phone call? We do have a contract and um, I leave that up to the client. Often today, people are so busy, they just want to handle it by phone. But I always tell them if you're more comfortable, you know, coming in, you want to see me and meet me and feel just comfortable with who they're paying money to, I'm uh, completely fine with that. But as I mentioned, you know, it's really a 20-minute phone conversation. So then we get, once we can email photographs, I can email them a contract or they can come in. And then, of course, they need to pay a retainer. And then once we get that information together, we can get started from there. So what's the most typical kind of surveillance that, that you're asked to do? Probably the most typical is adultery. You know, a husband or wife who thinks their spouse is cheating with someone, sometimes they know who and sometimes they don't. So that that's the most common. But we also do, you know, child custody cases. So we'll do surveillance on the spouse, on the, the parent while they have custody of the child or sometimes when the child's not with them, depending on the behavior that we're looking for. Mm-hmm. What do you think the biggest misperception your clients have from everything they've seen on TV about what they could expect you to do? I think a lot of people think that we can tap phones and put cameras inside houses. and But also a lot of people think that we have to see them in the act. They think that that's the only way you can prove it. So kind of explaining to them what's necessary in North Carolina to prove evidence of adultery, that tends to make them feel better, you know, because it's not, we don't have to see them in the act, although occasionally we do. And just one of those those extras, I guess, uh, more information than you need sometimes when you're doing that. That's exactly right, yes. So tell us a little bit about when you're talking about surveillance, what is it? Is it cameras? Is it, are you present watching the whole time, filming? You know, just what generally are you going to be able to accomplish? Are you following people around town, sitting in restaurants with them? 
Uh, yes and yes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so typically once we establish the the best time to do surveillance, for example, that may be after work. You know, if somebody says they have a business dinner, and so we obviously would begin surveillance late in the day, pick them up, actually following them, see where they go. If they go to a restaurant or a bar, then we'll go inside and see who they're meeting with. And it may turn out to be a client meeting or a part, you know, business partner meeting. Oftentimes it doesn't. And so then we'll follow them when they leave the restaurant and see what they do afterwards, try to observe some sign of affection between them. And so we do, of course, have video cameras and we will use a variety of types of cameras. Sometimes they're as small as like an inch by inch and we'll take that inside a restaurant that has got a wide angle lens. So we're able to see behavior and activity there. That's something that we might be able to to also install in a hotel and see them coming in and out of the room. So sometimes we use our phones. You know, we might be on an elevator with them and need to take a picture and we just use our phones because everybody's got a phone in their hands these days. That is true. Now, if you are actively following someone, so what sort of manpower does it take if you're trying to actually drive through Charlotte traffic and and follow people? Well, obviously, it's becoming increasingly difficult. Most of the time, we use two investigators in two separate cars. And, of course, we do a lot of switching off, a lot of turning off, so that the same car is not behind them the same time and the same person. There are situations where we can put a GPS on the the other vehicle. And if the GPS applies in that situation, then usually we can just use one investigator which then will cut their costs in half. So they kind of get more bang for their buck if we are able to do it that way. So what are the parameters? I mean, I know what they are, but can you share with the listeners about when it is that you can legally use the GPS as an alternative to just having two people in two cars and following the old-fashioned way? Sure. Well, the, the, there is no real clear-cut law. There are attorneys who are very conservative about GPS use, and there's attorneys who are not as conservative. And so I certainly respect what if they have an attorney on board at that point, I respect what that attorney wants us to, to do as far as how to handle the case. My business method has always been if the vehicle is considered to be marital property. So regardless of how it's titled, whether it's in his name, her name, or both names, if the vehicle was acquired during the marriage, then I personally am comfortable putting a GPS on that vehicle. If, for example, the husband drives a corporate vehicle, then that is not a vehicle that we would put the GPS on. Right. Because the spouse can't give us permission to do so. Or as well as a family, like another member of the family gave a car or gifted a car that's not titled in either spouse's name. That's correct. So this might be a good time for you to talk about the training and the the licenses uh, that official, properly licensed private investigators carry. Yeah, in North Carolina, we we have an application process, and North Carolina does require you to have a license. All states don't; most do. And the, the licensing process is it's quite grueling. It's a it's a, about a twelve page application. You've got to submit references that sign a notarized statement about your character. You've got to submit a credit report, obviously a criminal history. And North Carolina has two levels of licensing. There is a full investigator's license. You can get that full license if you've had 3,000 hours of investigative experience within the last 10 years. 
If you do not have that experience, you can get what's called an associate's level license. The only difference in those two licenses is that with an associate's license, you cannot go out and start your own business. You do the same duties. I have people who are associates under me and who are fully licensed. They do the same duties. Just you have to have that full license to start your own business. And that licensing process, uh, we have a, a board that meets every other month. And honestly, it can take six to eight weeks to get your license. And then the, the state does have some required training. Of course, every company is different as to their, you know, their own personal methods of training and how much they, they train. But certainly everyone has to start somewhere, but we supervise our new investigators very closely. We're not necessarily always right there with them, but we're talking with them continuously about, you know, what do you have going on? What are you going to do next? You know, giving them advice until they kind of learn the ropes. Because you want to be sure that you're not breaking any laws. Absolutely. Violating anyone's privacy or, or putting yourself at, at risk of right. um, getting in trouble. Right. And most of the time, you know, our cases, we don't have a do-over because mm-hmm. we're out there just real time. And mm-hmm. it's really hard for us to go back and do it again or have another opportunity to do it again. You know, sometimes we do, but not always. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I never recommend that people do this themselves or get a friend. You know, I'll have somebody who comes in and and they're just like, well, you know, my friend and I want to follow him or, you know, my two best friends are going to get in the car and follow them. And I'm always like, no, no, (laughs) you really need a professional to do this. Right, right. To make sure that it's done properly. Yeah. Well, and the most important part about that is they're likely to get spotted. And if they do get burned, as we call it, then it's very hard for us to come in afterwards now that you've got the person already paranoid. So that that's the main reason. And, you know, it's it can be dangerous. And if your client is following them, then they have all these emotions that they're dealing with. And so, you know, when they see something that they don't want to see, then things could start to happen. So sometimes I have clients that say, I want to go with you. I'm like, no, I've never in 32 years ever taken a client on surveillance for that reason, because people can get hurt. So what do you think are some of the more common lines that you draw? So what are things when uh, clients call and ask you to do that you're just like, no, um, that is absolutely not something we're going to do. And we don't recommend that you do it either. They, I, I do have people ask to put cameras in, in their own house, and they're often surprised that they can't do that without, without the other spouse's knowledge. And and that's that's not a criminal violation. It's an invasion of privacy. And so potentially they could be sued for that and potentially their evidence could not be admitted. So it's never recommended. I, I do have people, you know, who want to try to put spyware on their laptops or their devices or their phones. And, of course, we don't do any of that. I, I have clients that have done that kind of thing. And then that's really the most two common most requests that they ask us to do. You know, we don't break any laws. I mean, we'll walk down the street, we'll see, look in people's windows. You know, if their curtains are open, then we're going to see in. You know, they don't have a right to, to privacy if they're going to have their curtains open. Uh, we're going to, you know, sneak around a little bit, but we don't break any laws. Mm. You ever go in any trash cans? Absolutely. Yeah. What are the What are the rules about that? That's kind of actually one of my favorite ones. <laughs> so as long as the trash is put out to the curb, then then it's kind of fair game. And so we we do a fair amount of that. 
A lot of times we do that in relation to custody cases, if there's an uh, alcohol issue with one of the other parents. And so the recycling bin is a, is a great place to look for that kind of behavior. And what about the reports that you produce? I've seen a lot of them, and it's actually very detailed. But explain sort of what the product ends up being. So... Of course, the clients will get verbal updates all throughout. We're we're in tight communication with them. You know, during the surveillance, after each surveillance, they know pretty much right away what's going on. But once we get to a milestone, a point where they've either said, I can't do anymore, or the attorney has decided, you know, we have enough, then we do compile the report. And it's it's extremely detailed. I mean, it it can minute by minute, basically, turn by turn. You know, we try to... We try to paint a picture for them. So when my investigators are out doing the work, when I review the report in the end, even though I wasn't there, I should be able to see a movie in my head of what just happened. And so I feel like the clients deserve that. You know, they're paying for us to get them everything we can. And so, you know, we'll provide that written report. And then we'll also put together a video for them of whatever video surveillance we were able to get. So how much should a client expect to spend? Is there any average or is it going to depend on the situation? Or it's, it's, um, it's so dependent on the situation. And I think sometimes clients are a little frustrated because they do say, what's the average? And there just is no average because I have people who have us go out and do one day of surveillance and we get what we need and they can't do anymore or they decide not to do anymore. And I have some clients who we do, you know, 90 days, 120 days of surveillance straight for. So there's just no rhyme or reason. What about travel? So, you know, I've had people certainly suggest, you know, oh, there's a business trip and it's in Vail. And I want to get a PI, you know, to go travel to Vail. And as exciting as that sounds, there's some limitations on on what you can do um, and how you have to handle that, isn't there? There, well, there are limita- limitations in, in certain states. You know, it depends on the licensing requirement. Most of our bordering states we have reciprocal agreements with, and so as long as your case originates here, we can go. But there, there's different, definitely advantages for the client to hire us to go to where the case is or, or hire a PI in that area. Sometimes, so do you ever do that, like associate somebody if, you were, if it was Vegas or another jurisdiction, do you ever like stay on it, but then like hire somebody else to hand it off to? Yes. There are times where I just refer the client directly to that person. And then there are times where the attorney wants me to stay involved so that I can make sure that that person knows and, you know, what we need in North Carolina, because every state's different. So it's, it's different every time as to whether I stay in and coordinate it. Sometimes they don't need to pay me to do that. And so I just step up, step away until they need me here. What are some of the things that should maybe put somebody on notice that they should hire a PI? Well, the the gut and the intuition is just always right on. You know, whenever they sense that something's wrong, and, and people often laugh about, oh, they went out and got a new wardrobe, or they're losing weight, but it's just so true. I mean, it's just it's just spot on every time, you know, when the the wife or the husband comes to me and says, oh, you know, they haven't worked out in 15 years and they joined the Y and now they've gone shopping. You know, I always bought his clothes. Now he wants me to buy the clothes. I mean, him to buy the clothes. And so 
it's uh, that those are all indicators, you know, when they're taking longer than they're supposed to be, you know, when the the uh, trip home takes two hours instead of 30 minutes or they're running out on a Saturday afternoon and just behavior that's different than what it normally was. Mm-hmm. And the expenses, I, it seems to me that when um, you don't want to be tracked, everybody uses debit cards all the time. You know, one of the, the things that I notice if all of a sudden there's a lot of cash withdrawals um, yes. that are atypical yes. um, so that they can spend without um, being noticed. Yes, we, we do see that a lot. And, and we'll see the people go to the ATMs. Unfortunately, it's oftentimes you see those cash withdrawals that are related to prostitution and escort services. Yeah. So I've read a lot in the news about the uh, sort of sex trafficking problem that, that Charlotte has. So you're, you're talking about prostitutes and I can imagine that you have actually probably encountered a fair amount of your surveillance not being, you know, kind of what we see in the movies, some sort of clandestine relationship where it's a real, I don't know, a real live person that somebody is seeing on a consistent basis. But I've seen an increase in this revolving character of people that that there are definitely a larger number of people paying for relationships with people. Definitely. It's, um, I mean, the most common is, of course, the relationship, but we are seeing more and more with the, you know, the websites, the the back page and the sugar daddy. I, I don't even know all, all of them now, but, and what's really surprising is the professionals, you know, the, the male professionals that you see coming into the city or even in their own home city where they're hiring those types of people. And it can range from, you know, driving in a section of town where they're known to walk or hotels where they're known to to stay at to several thousand dollars a night where you're paying somebody to to be your escort. And sadly, we're seeing a lot of follow-up to that where where men are doing that and then they're later being blackmailed. And so sometimes they'll even take the escort to their house if their spouse is out of town. Or they tell the escort so enough about them and they're prominent businessmen. And then the next thing they know, they find themselves, you know, victim of a blackmail situation. And it's just a terrible situation for everybody to be in. What about the danger? Some of these these situations with especially the, the sex trade, there are some very dangerous people who are involved in it. Um, have you ever decided that, look, there's just an area that I'm not going an area of town I'm not going to go follow up on or now I'm not going to uh, to get involved with this because and you need to not either. Not really. I mean, you know, certainly we go to bad areas of town and uh, doing criminal defense work for as long as I did. You know, I've spent a lot of hours in bad areas of town. Um, You know, we've done a lot of federal court uh, murder cases that involve gangs. And so that is dangerous and it does get your attention but typically the domestic stuff is not, um, there, there's always a risk for danger, but it's not typically um, that that dangerous. So we've talked a lot about the uh, cheating spouses, which is clearly one of the most common reasons that I think in domestic cases people hire um, private investigators. But you did allude a little bit to the custody situation and, and drinking, and I know that that's something that we've also used. So explain sort of the difference when you're, or is there any difference when you're tracking someone to see if they're being faithful to their spouse or 
you're following people to see if they're being a good, safe parent? Well, the surveillance is the same. What might differ is the times that you do surveillance. Most of the time in custody situations, you're going to want to do surveillance when the other parent has the child to prove they're an unfit parent if that behavior is going on. There are times that we follow them without the child. If we see just really obvious drug behavior or we do see that someone's prostituting, then you know that goes a lot towards character, and so it just helps build a case for, for custody. But really, surveillance is surveillance, and we just gather and document what we see, and hopefully it can be of some benefit to the client. So do you involve yourself in the uh, technical aspects of surveillance in terms of, and by technical, I mean the um, technology aspects in terms of um, looking at people's phones or computers or, or any of that stuff, or, or do you not handle that? We do handle that. The forensic analysis of like a laptop or a cell phone. Yeah, there's a lot of information that's available, but people think sometimes that they can just swipe their spouse's phone and hand it off to us. And that's not the case. If the phone has a passcode on it, then especially if it's an Apple, then as you see a lot about this in the news, sometimes you can't get through that passcode. And so there are some regulations that you have to follow. It's not not as easy as people think it is, but we do offer that as a service. And um, it is definitely, it's more popular, uh, but there are limitations. Now, you mentioned that you didn't feel comfortable putting GPS systems, trackers on um, company-owned vehicles. And of course, I'm assuming that also applies if it's a company-issued phone or a company-issued computer. That's not something that you need somebody to bring to you. No, unless the, the company, which mm-hmm. you know is, has come to me and said, this was our employee's phone, this was our employee's laptop, I'd like for you to, to analyze it for me. But if the spouse takes the, the phone that belongs to the, the company, then no, we can't do that. Well, I know that it probably, you know, on TV, they make it seem kind of glamorous or exciting, but... I assume that it's actually really hard work to do what you do. You know, I tell people it doesn't take a rocket scientist to do BI work. It just really takes the right personality. I mean, you if, if you're trainable and you learn how to do this work, you have to have the right personality because you, you have to be able to sit in your car with not anything happening for a long time and then feel good about what you're doing when things do happen and document it the best you can. You know, people think that sometimes when we go on a trip, it's really glamorous. Well, it's really not because we have to do what they do. Several years ago, we worked, had a couple of trips down to the Virgin Islands, and everybody would say, oh, yeah, that's just awesome. You have a trip in the Virgin Islands. Well, we're just going everywhere the person goes. And so that is boring and uh, can get difficult sometimes. Now, what are some barriers to being able to actually do surveillance when people come in and and say, I need you to do surveillance and you just end up being unable to actually follow that person and and actually follow through and seeing what they're doing? Probably the the number one uh, barrier is if if the client has confronted them and accused them and, you know, threatened to have them followed or tried to follow them themselves, and they just have them so paranoid, then it's very difficult for us to come in in any short time frame 
and get what they need. Sometimes we can wait a little bit, let them kind of calm down and, you know, stop being so paranoid. But that's probably the um, the biggest barrier that we face. And of course, you know, we, our investigators have to blend in. So, you know, that's different for every situation. So we have to have people that can, number one, go in and act like they're, they belong where they are, but they also need to not stand out. So you have to have features that would describe you as maybe normal. So that can definitely be a challenge. Same thing with your car. You know, you don't want to do surveillance in a red Ferrari or a red Corvette. So everything needs to be neutral. How are all of the gated communities cropping up around town affecting the situation? I know I, I have trouble even just getting certified mail and FedEx into people these days for, for normal mail service. Some of them are more secure than others. Uh, we can handle many of them, but there are there are some that we just have difficulties with. And so we just have to work it the best way we can. So instead of being able to see the door to the apartment, which is our main goal, we you know sit and watch the exit to the apartment. So I would imagine that you've seen about everything by now. Just when I think I've seen it all, somebody comes in and tells me another story. So I kind of say the same thing when people say, I guess you've heard it all. And I'll be like, right. yeah, actually, this one was here <laughs> and just, you know, every day. But um, talk a little bit about your confidentiality. I mean, this is not cocktail conversation where you go places and be like, oh, my God, you won't believe what I just saw last week. Yeah, absolutely not. And that is, you know, just key and. You know, my my philosophy has been for 30 years, your integrity and your confidentiality. And it only takes one slip up to, to blow that. And you have employees and you have to trust them. And so we really vet our employees. I really, you know, try to get, I have very dedicated employees. You know, you just have to have that dedication in your gut and in your heart to to know that you just can't talk about your cases other than some general stuff. And it needs to be long after the case is resolved. Of course, people want to hear stories all the time. They you know, ask me, tell me your most famous story. And of course, I can tell them something from 20 years ago that's very general, that gives no specifics. But that's very important to us, confidentiality. And, you know, people are most concerned about that because they're so nervous about calling. And they'll, they'll say to me, oh, you know, my spouse is very well known in the community and, you know, I need to be assured that they won't find out. And so that's important to them. And we, uh, it's important to us as well. So obviously, you know, I invited you on the show. So you're on my short list of, mm -hmm. of people that, that I know I trust my clients with, but I really do think that there's so many people putting themselves out there. What should somebody who is looking to hire a private investigator, and obviously you can't do them all uh, for a couple of reasons, but what are some things that they should really be looking for to make sure that they are going to get quality work and get the level of ethics that they should? Well, of course, uh, a referral, hopefully an attorney referral, it, because that's going to be an attorney who's used that investigator and has a track record with them. It could also be a friend referral who's used them and has a good track record and trusts them. But really, I think it's just their comfort level. I mean, if you have a conversation with somebody, whether it's over the phone or in person, most people will know how it feels. You know, does it feel right to you? Do you feel like this person is a good fit? And, you know, I tell my clients when I'm referring attorneys to them, you know, you have to feel comfortable with that person. It's not about their retainer. It can't be about their retainer. 
you need to just find somebody that you're comfortable with. And I think that's the same with investigators. You know, nowadays, everybody's website looks great. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you go on the website, you know, five, 10 years ago, you could tell, you know, whether or not they were professional. But I think the main thing in our business is really just finding someone that is professional and that can write a report. There are, I've seen investigators come and go over the last 32 years, and there were many people who were great investigators and they were poor business people. So they didn't manage their businesses. They didn't, you know, so they ended up going out of business. And so I think just being professional and having a good track record is something that you need to look for. Now, how often have you had to go to court to uh, talk about your surveillance and, and your reports? You know, it's, it's not as often as one would think. I mean, I've certainly testified many times and my investigators have testified many times. But if if we're successful in our case and we get good information for the client, that typically causes things to settle before they go to court. So um, but we do we do have occasion where we're deposed and we end up in court. What are some things that you think attorneys or people should be using you guys for that you don't see that you get? many calls for, where you know you can provide value in these domestic situations and people just don't think about it? Well, I think that, I mean, I think it is obvious when people have a suspicion of adultery, they they call us. And so that referral is there. I think, I think custody is an area where attorneys don't always think about. If it's, if there's a suspicion of drugs or alcohol or, you know, time spent with the child, then those things are obvious. But, um, I think sometimes it's just, okay, what are they doing with the with the kids? You know, are they sitting there playing their video games the whole time? Are they leaving them with a parent? You know, if this is their weekend of visitation and they pick them up on Friday and Friday night they drop them off with grandma and they see them for two hours for breakfast on Saturday and then they go back to grandma's house, I think showing a pattern of that is very valuable in custody situations when you're trying to determine who's going to have the most quality time with the kids. I know one thing that that I like to um, have my clients look into is when they, um, and it's usually in the context of custody, but when there is a new relationship that one of the former spouses has and and they raise a concern, I've often said, well, you know, get a background check done or have this person checked out if you don't know who they are or they're not from the community because it could provide you valuable information about who or what that person is, because typically a former spouse isn't going to be super forthcoming right. about the details of their new relationship. Some are, but in a contentious situation, often they're not. So do you perform thorough background checks and, and these sorts of research? Definitely, type? definitely. You know, the 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 main things are you want, want to look for a criminal record, of course, and then you also want to look for driving history. You know, do they, do they, even as simple as do they have insurance on in their car, if they're going to be driving your children around, you're going to want to know, are they insured? Do they have a prior DWI? You know, do they have 10 speeding tickets? Those, that's just good information to know. And then we'll also go and pull prior divorces and see what 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 are the allegations that have been made against this person? That doesn't mean that they're true, but at least it will give you some sense of some past behavior. And then we can go as deep as the person wants to go. I mean, a lot of times we'll get, you know, 911 calls to somebody's residence because it may, there may have been a domestic dispute that didn't end in a criminal charge, which wouldn't show up on their criminal record. 
So, you know, it's not magic. Background checks are not magic. Sometimes people think we can push a button and find anything and everything about people. But um, we certainly try to do as thorough a job as possible um, without alerting anybody, without talking to people, without doing interviews. There are cases where that's appropriate, but in this situation, we would not do interviews or talk with anyone. Now, what sort of information do you need to be able to do that? I mean, I know often if you apply for a job, you're signing a consent for one. And so I think some people think that the other person has to consent. But what would they need to provide you for for you to be able to do an accurate one? The best information is name and date of birth. But if they don't have a date of birth, then, you know, an address is helpful. We, we can usually find a match. We, run, we have problems with very common names. And if they don't know, an, you know, even an approximate age. But most of the time we can find a match. And then once we get that confirmation, we run with it from there. So, Jan, if somebody had some other questions or they were just interested in retaining your services, where would they find you? What's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Well, our number is very easy to remember. It's 704-377-1000. And then we also, of course, have a website, www.barefootpi.com. Those are the two best ways to reach us. Well, we thank you for coming so much. Thanks for having uh, me. Sharing your your in information with us because I know that it's 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 a nerve-wracking situation and subject for people and they're often a little intimidated about it. Yes, it is. But thank you for having me. Thanks. So there you have it. Another neighborhood of Splitsville explored. There's still so much to learn here. So I hope you'll tune in to the next episode. While Splitsville is not a fun place to be, thankfully it is full of helpful people valuable resources, and sound advice if you know where to look. See you next time. The insights and views presented in Welcome to Splitsville are for general information purposes only and should not be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. Nor does tuning into this podcast constitute an attorney-client relationship of any kind. If you're ready for compassionate and reliable legal guidance on your journey, contact Lee Sellers and her team at www.touchstonefamilylaw.com.